Welcome to BBC's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website at ballamvineyard.org or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you so much. Um, George, firstly, I want to say we love the vineyard at HTB because um, you guys introduced us to the Holy Spirit in a big way. And, uh, you know, we're just so thankful what God is doing amongst you, uh, what Steve's doing here, what the team are doing here. What an incredible thing. Um, people say the church is dead. Look around you, people. What an incredible place filled with young people who love the Lord. That is such an encouragement to my heart. I travel around uh, the UK quite a bit. Um, and I'm fortunate to come into quite a lot of settings where there's a lot of life. But I was just really excited tonight to walk in through the doors on a very hot evening and to see so many people passionate about coming together. And I think... Um, There should be a lot more of these mix-ups between Brave Talk and Man Alive. I think that's a really good thing. Um, I recognize a lot of faces in the room. I'm I'm brilliant at faces. I'm terrible at names. So um, hello if I've met you before. I know some some of you I really recognize. It's really great to see you again. London is a weirdly large, small place. And um, it's just lovely to see some friendly faces in the room. Uh, As George said, I'm... um, uh, I'm pastoral chaplain at Hope New Brompton. I've been a uh, priest in London for 15 years, uh, specialising in emotional and mental health particularly. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm passionate about this whole idea that actually Jesus has called us to come and live life and life in all its fullness. And that fullness means that we need to address issues of spiritual and emotional as well as practical poverty. And um, in our experience, I work largely with a consultant psychiatrist called Rob Waller, and that's a lot of our books on the emotions being written together. We, we, we really feel passionate about equipping the saints for uh, life in the kingdom, which means addressing issues around emotional and mental health particularly. So tonight we're going to be talking a bit about, um, a bit about perfectionism. And I've got a few slides on the screen, so if we could just... Um, Look at this idea, and initially I'm talking about the poison of perfectionism. Now, a lot of people here are thinking, well, I didn't think it was that bad. Because the reality is, in the church, we've got a bit of a love to love to hate the uh, issue of perfectionism. The, the, the fact is that in the list of sins that we were going to like put on our spreadsheet, perfectionism wasn't going to feature very high, high up there. We've been quite accommodating in our experience of perfectionism. And if I was going to poll you guys like as a group and say, you know, in the list of sins, like the Ten Commandments maybe, could we bump perfectionism up into the list somewhere? You'd be going, no, 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 it's not really that bad. Uh, working in the church for a long period of time means I've recruited quite a lot of people. And, you know, typically our experience of perfectionism in the church is like this. Church leaders secretly like it, and people who want to work for the church secretly think that we like it. So not, what normally happens is we, we send you a job application form, and the first page is easy because Christians know, you know, right or wrong answers. So filling in your qualifications, that's relatively straightforward. But then you turn over the page and there's that really difficult box that says, what are your strengths? Now, you know that if you overfill the box, that's the sin of pride. And therefore, there's no way you're going to be employed by the church. So you, over, you only fill it three quarters of the way full to show that you're competent, but actually you're not proud, you're humble. And you could add more. That's what you're saying. I could add more, but I won't add more because I'm humble. So you've done all right with box number one. But then you get to box number two, and that's where the problems really start. That one says, what are your weaknesses? Now, if you don't fill it, then you're proud, right? So you're definitely not going to be employed. But if you overfill it, you're just unemployable. So you're definitely not going to get a job. So you're thinking, what on earth can I put in this box that's going to make me not proud and not unemployable? I know. 
I'm a bit of a perfectionist because I'm going to work. No, it's true. I'm going to work long hours for low pay and I'm going to get everything right. Welcome to the church, people. No, when it comes to perfectionism, we all think, oh, yeah, that's it. You know, perfectionism, what's wrong with that? I want to work long hours for low pay. I'm going to get everything right. Perfectionism kind of is bad, but secretly we all know it's good. You know, and I've done a few conferences with a lot of people. I'm not going to do it tonight, but because you all know the answer because I put poison and perfectionism up there. But if I was going to be really mean, I wouldn't put anything up there and say, what do you think about perfectionism? Who thinks it's really bad? Very few people actually put up their hands. If they do, it's only because the idea is leading. But I want to change your minds tonight about the nature of perfectionism. I want to think about what perfectionism really is. Now, one of the things that really foxes us as Christians is that that an understanding of what perfectionism is very close to what Christian discipleship looks like. So, Wiki is not the most responsible person in the world, but let's go with him anyway. Perfectionism in psychology is a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness and setting excessively high performance standards, accompanied by overly critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' evaluations of them. Now, think about that. That actually doesn't sound that bad. So, it's a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness. Well, you know, as Christians, we're striving for holiness, which is quite similar to flawlessness. You know, we, we're not out there to make big mistakes. We set some pretty excessively high performance-based standards because our model is Jesus Christ, who's the only person who's ever walked the earth and never made a single mistake. And then we are all called to this kind of humility, which means that we often carry within us a narrative which is highly critical regarding our self-evaluations. So we're like, well, you know, did I really do anything wrong? Have I sinned today? I need to examine my life and then I need to make confession. We're also quite concerned about other people's evaluations of us. And when we come to church, you know, we generally smile and shake the pastor's hand. And, you know, we hope that they think well of us. Now, you don't agree. <laughs> I think you all agree. The thing is, when it comes to our experience as Christians with perfectionism, it can sound a bit like that Christian discipleship and perfectionism are actually linked. And that's why so many Christians struggle with perfectionism, because they cannot distinguish between what perfectionism is and what Christian discipleship is. But I want to say that Jesus has not come in order that you might be a perfectionist, that you might be fettered. He's come that you might be free. And, and if you're looking for like, scriptural example of this you know I'll just point out loosely that when Paul writes to the Corinthians he writes about their sexual ethics because they got it wrong but when he writes to the Galatians he writes them about perfectionism because they were choosing another gospel which Paul says is really no gospel at all it was this idea that there was a gospel plus there was something that you could do as well as something that God could do in order to save you and, and Paul spends most of Galatians chapter 1 talking to the Galatians about how they've fallen into the trap of perfectionism. Now, just to be very, very simple, in terms of our understanding of what perfectionism is versus what excellence is, have a look at this little scale right here. The thing is that we often lump together excellence and perfection. People say, oh yeah, excellence, striving for excellence and per perfectionism, that, that's kind of the same thing. But it's really not the same thing, because if you look at this scale, I mean, maybe we're being a bit generous that 50% is good. Certainly wasn't for me when I was at school. Very good, maybe 75%, okay, possibly. But, but, but you can't get better than 100%. So that's excellent, right? But perfectionism says you can do better than 100%. Now, that is automatically problematic, because actually, how much better can you do than 100%? 
Because that scale only ends there because the slide isn't big enough to go on and on and on and on because at no point does a perfectionist ever believe that they've actually done enough. Perfectionism is the belief that you can never do enough. That actually Jesus' sacrifice wasn't really sufficient. There was no real excellence because we can't accept excellence. We can't accept what the gospel's called sufficiency because sufficiency damages something in me. That's this never-ending sense that I have to strive towards something else because if I stop and celebrate my winnings, I'm just going to fall apart. Often in people's experience with perfectionism, there's this perpetual motion to keep on striving for something that's better. I'm sure that some of you here will have watched programs like Love Island. A few of you. No one's going to admit, no one's going to admit it, right? A few people. Yes, good. Honest people in the room. Honest people. Now, if you've watched any of these sort of programs, you'll see that some people go to incredible lengths to try and find the perfect body. In our organization, we do quite a lot of work with people who suffer with, with something called body dysmorphic disorder, which is the kind of this perpetual striving for perfection in the body. Now, it's classified as actually quite a serious mental health problem because at no point can someone with body dysmorphic disorder accept that they are enough. They can be satisfied with themselves. And this sort of perfectionism is ruining people's lives. It's actually ruining young people's lives in our society today. Self, we are the self-harm capital of Europe. Manchester is the self-harm city capital of Europe. We've got a massive problem with issues around perfectionism, and it's only getting worse. Social media is fueling a culture of comparison making that's always saying whatever you're doing, it's just not enough. It's not good enough, it's not bright enough, it's not great enough, and you must not stop to celebrate your winnings. You've got to keep on working. So whilst perfectionism seems like this little innocuous thing that we do that just helps us to stay motivated towards success, it's actually undoing our success in spades. The other mistake that people make when it comes to perfectionism is that they believe that if they stop being a perfectionist, they won't reach excellence. Now, they believe that perfectionism is this incredible fuel towards them achieving great things. But psychologists have shown us that actually far from providing the opportunity to achieve excellence, perfectionism is undoing our ability to achieve excellence. We believe it's more helpful than it really is. When Rob and I wrote the perfectionism book, we did a bit of study into a, an anthropology. We were studying some, something called a cargo cult, which is a cult that's developed out of the availability of cargo, which sounds very odd. But basically in Micronesia, which is kind of northern Indonesia, during the, at the end of the Second World War, American GIs were, were creating camps to fight the war in the Pacific. Is everyone with me? Okay. So... so <laughs> Micronesians, basically, had never seen aeroplanes, they'd never seen soldiers, they'd never seen cargo, and suddenly Americans started turning up building massive runways and then bringing all this incredible goods to, to their islands. Now, when the runways had been built, the Americans started raising a flag, as they do every day, this raising of the flag ceremony. So the Micronesians are watching here from the bushes, and they're seeing what the Americans are up to, and they realise that when the flag goes up, then suddenly these amazing gods appear in the sky, these sky gods, which were actually aeroplanes. Now, the sky gods appear, they're like eagles, and they land, and then they open their bellies, and they bring out all these amazing stuff, like amazing stuff, like the Micronesians had never seen before in their lives. So, like, goods, you know, wine, armaments, food, clothing, all this sort of stuff they've never seen. So, in their religious context, they're believing, okay, this is amazing. 
So for two or three years, whilst the war in the Pacific's going on, the Micronesians are watching what the Americans are doing, and they're obviously trading off for them to try and get some of these goods. But when the Americans leave and the war's over, they suddenly believe that they've been abandoned by the gods. Now, they started talking about, they created a cult called um, Linecon, which is obviously to do with Abraham Lincoln. Um, and uh, these, these kind of religious beliefs developed, which is why they're called cargo cults. Now, weirdly, the Micronesians kept looking after the runways. In fact, they made their own airplanes out of bark, like amazing airplanes. And they put them on the runways, and they kept the runways clear. And then they made their own uniforms, and then they made their own flags. And every day they had a raising of the flag ceremony, hoping that they were going to make the god come back and open his belly and deliver all their goods. So they identified that the action of raising the flag would lead to the arrival of the goods. What was really confusing was when missionaries started arriving three or four years later, at the same time as when they were raising the flag. Because it just seemed to prove that when you raise the flag, the gods are going to arrive. You're thinking, where is he going with this? <laughs> this is a really long illustration for a really small point. But this is the thing about perfectionism and excellence. You perform perfectionistically in the belief that excellence is going to land on your runway. You keep on being perfectionistic, and sooner or later, excellence will land on your runway. Then you believe you have to be perfectionistic in order that excellence will land on your runway. Then it becomes a lifelong cycle. You keep acting in a perfectionistic way. You keep beating yourself up again about what you haven't done. You keep on comparing yourself to other people's achievements. You keep looking at yourself critically. You keep fostering this critical inner narrative in your own mind. And you think that is going to lead you to be excellent. Actually, it's doing the reverse. It's coincidental that you're a perfectionist and you experience excellence. That's why I want you to think about the cargo cult. Because you've got to ask the question, is raising the flag what makes the plane land? Or does the plane land anyway? Now, we're going to ask the, qu oh, we're going to ask the question, am I, am I a perfectionist? This is like a game. I turn that way. It goes, beep. Then I turn back again. It's good. Okay, let's ask a few questions. Am I a perfectionist? So if you're a perfectionist, what's it look like? Now, this isn't a diagnostic to make you guys all feel really bad about yourselves. We all relate to some of these, okay, just to be clear. But I'm highly conscious and hypercritical of mistakes. I aim to be the best in everything I do. I spend unreasonable amounts of time trying to perfect something. You spend unreasonable amounts of time trying to perfect something. You set absolute ideals. You're the harshest critic of yourself. Who relates to any of those? Great. Okay. Well, there's more, so don't get too excited about the fact that it's over. If we move on uh, to number six, you ruminate over why things didn't turn out as planned. You're defensive towards criticism and fear failure. You have the end goal only in mind. You have an all-or-nothing approach. You're anxious in any situation that might give others the perception that you aren't perfect. Now, here's a, here's a pretty comprehensive diagnosis about whether or not you struggle with perfectionism. The thing is, I would say that most of us relate to three or four of those. But if you're right up there with thinking, yeah, I relate to all of those really strongly, then maybe this is something you want to spend a little bit more time thinking about. But, but it's helpful for all of us because actually what perfectionism is doing is it's exposing the reality that we feel afraid that we are not good enough. You see, when it comes to guilt, guilt is bad feelings about things we've actually done. But shame is just bad things, feelings about us. Like guilt is bad thing, feelings around objective events, but shame is just bad feelings about who we are. And perfectionism is part of the shame spiral. Perfectionism says, actually, you're ashamed. 
you aren't good enough. Now you've got to do everything you possibly can to make other people believe that you're good enough. And it could be good enough in every sphere of life, whatever is important to you. It might be looks, it might be academic achievement, it might be in the workplace, it might be in church. We can apply perfectionism in every setting. But what we need to understand is if we believe that, and that perfectionism is supportive of our success, we are never going to make a recovery. So when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness, life in all its fullness is definitely not this sort of life. It's not this kind of anxious life where we're working all the time to propagate this self-image that other people will approve of. Because you guys are workmen approved in advance by God for works that he's prepared for you to do. You already have the seal of approval. In fact, you've already received excellence if you've received Jesus. Jesus became our shame in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's remarkable. So you are all the righteousness of God personified. When Jesus died on the cross, yes, he died for our guilt because he died for our material acts, but he also died for our shame in order that our identity might not be one that's broken, but one that's mended. So you are workmen approved in advance, and you are the righteousness of God, and perfectionism doesn't really have a big part to play in this whole journey. As Paul says, this is a non-gospel. He uses a Greek word, metastasizi, which is linked to the word metastasize, which we use when we talk about cancer spreading. And Paul's saying, you know, we cannot let this cancer of perfectionism infect the life of the church. We've got to cut it out. Because this idea that you could live gospel plus, you could receive the forgiveness and love of God, but also you've got to work for it yourself, that steals the very essence of what it is to be a Christian, which is that you've been made approved, that it's God's work, it's the excellent work of Jesus on the cross that has done everything that you need for life and living. So when we're pressing into this challenge to perfectionism, we're pressing into reality of what it is to live a full Christian life. If we hold on to this uh, faulty belief that perfectionism is virtuous will be suffocated by its accusations and demands for the whole of our lives. Now, I've worked with people who are 60, 70-year-old perfectionists, and it's not happy picture, people. It really isn't. Uh, I worked with one woman who had a really difficult um, nervous breakdown in her mid-60s, having had a very, very successful um, medical career. She's one of those people, if you go to sit on her loo, you know, it's wall-to-wall -wall achievements. It's like, it's the most humiliating pe place to ever pee. So, looking up the walls, you know, how many, like, special certificates and doctorates and medical school qualifications and awards for excellence and clinical excellence covering this woman's walls. And so, I'm helping her unpick why she might have had a nervous breakdown. And what transpired, in fact, was that she was a, a perfectionist who'd always been striving after the parental approval that she'd never received. That her mum had never said, you know what, I just love you. I, I just love you just as you are. What she only received was criticism. You're just not good enough. And so she strived for excellence and used perfection as the motivating factor for that. And when her mum finally died, she actually, at 94, she could actually acknowledge in her spirit that she was never going to receive the approval that she craved. And that's when her whole world collided. She wasn't even sure she even liked medicine. Imagine that. Driven for this false mission for an approval that you'll never receive because perfectionism is this thing that we can give way to. We believe it's supported. Uh, writer Annie Wilson Schaaf says that um, perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order. 
I've already talked tonight about self-harm. You know, we work with people from some pretty kind of complex um, self-abuse of different styles, but no one would correlate perfectionism as being self-abuse of the highest order. I was just on the train coming down here. There was a girl next to me whose, whose arms were covered in scars where she'd been cutting herself. And I was just thinking, wow, I'm going to talk to people about perfectionism. It doesn't look quite as radical as that. But you know what? It's, it's the scar of the heart. It's, the, it's, it's, the, it's cutting your heart. It says, you know what? You're, you're not good enough. You've got to try harder. You've got to do better. You can never slow down. You can never accept the successes of the past. Jesus isn't really your all-sufficient sacrifice. You've got to work a bit harder for the approval of man and woman. But you know, as Annie wilson Chase says, perfectionism is this, is this fuel towards self-abuse. I'm on the board of Mercy Ministries UK, which is a charity which supports particularly women, but increasingly men with life-controlling issues. And we've seen amongst the client base at Bradford and now through the Keys to Freedom Ministry all around the UK, what a powerful force perfectionism is in self-attacking, self-critical behaviors that lead to all sorts of emotional health problems. A couple of psychologists called Hewitt and Flett helped us out where perfectionism is concerned because perfectionism is languid in the, in the corners of life by never being really defined. Now, people have said, oh, perfectionism, yeah, what's that even really mean? But these guys said, look, there's something called the multidimensional perfectionism scale. Let's break it down. There are three sorts of perfectionism manifest in our lives. The first one is self-orientated. This one says, you just don't match up to your own standards. I'm not good enough, and I know it. I'm going to work harder for self-improvement's sake. But however successful other people say you are, you do not believe it and you do not receive it. And there's lots of Christian leaders like this. You know, people say, oh, that was a really great talk. Wow, that was really helpful. And in their mind, they're going, la, 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 la. <laughs> then there's the other orientated perfectionist. These people are so broken in themselves that they bully and cajole other people around their own weaknesses. Because if they attack them, they smokescreen themselves. So maybe you've got a boss like this at work. I can't believe you only made 23%. I said it was 25% increase on last year. But, but 23 is quite good. It's not good enough here. Why? Well, not really because 23% is not good enough, but because they're so terrified about themselves, they need to point aggressively towards other people in order that they can smokescreen themselves. They're hiding in plain sight. You know, if you find a really critical person in your experience, maybe in your, in your church small group, someone who's always knocking other people down, don't, don't respond to them with hostility. Just acknowledge that they are feeling unbelievably broken, normally by the narrative in their own minds. What is it that you hate about yourself? How can Jesus bring you a healing? You've got to address the issue because other orientated perfectionists are just as broken. They just appear aggressive and self-assured, and that's exactly what they, what they hope for. That's why they want to appear like that, because they want you to stay at arm's length. And then we've got the socially orientated perfectionist. And, and this is the scourge of our society right now, is that there are tens of thousands of images that you're going to experience every day which tell you that you aren't enough. You know what marketing is and advertising? It's there to steal your dignity and sell it back to you for the price of the product. Like, I'm cycling in. I'm cycling on my bicycle. I have an old Dutch bicycle. I'm cycling to work. Then I see a nicer bicycle on a picture with a handsomer man with more muscles. <laughs> and I cycle past. Initially, I feel fine about that. But then actually something pings up in my head and says, well, look at you. You're looking slightly chubby, and you've got this very old bicycle. And if you bought this new bicycle for £1,000, you might look like this guy and be more successful. And so I might go to the bicycle shop, and I might buy that bicycle, and I might start riding that bicycle, and I might ride past another poster that has a different bicycle on it, an even more handsome person, and then 
I'll think the same and I want to go because they just robbed my dignity. They made me feel just terrible about myself and I want to pay to buy it back. You know, every advertising message steals your dignity and sells it back to you for the price of their product. Like, why did Gillette men just look like normal men? Like, imagine if that was just a normal guy like James Corden, just shaving. Like, I'm shaving, it's a good razor, like it works on my chubby bits. Yeah, I'm, I like this razor, it's a good razor as far as I'm concerned. Imagine that, it'd be great. Instead, there's like the most like, unbelievable Adonis who's shaving his face. And you're like, why do you have to look like that to have this razor? But Well, of course you don't, but if you do buy this razor, then maybe, weirdly, while you're shaving, you'll like turn into this guy. <laughs> the world is set in this way because actually our spiritual battle is largely set this way too. Like the enemy is prowling around like a lion trying to missell the gospel of God's grace. He's trying to tell you that you've got to work for it, that it's actually in self-improvement, in betterment. You know, if the devil can't stop you doing the bad stuff, he'll get you to too much of the good stuff. Like the Galatians, it wasn't like they were really messing up like the Corinthians were. They were like ultra-religious. But the devil was just playing a new game with them, which was taking them further than the gospel. They were, they were the gospel plus. You know, and perfectionism is this. That's why it's such a problem amongst um, Christians particularly, because we all want to try so hard and do so well and get everything absolutely right. Know that by not being a perfectionist, it's not like the alternative is just crapness. You know, it's like, oh, well, I don't want to be a perfectionist anymore. Oh, that's all right. Just be, you know, average. Like, don't worry about holiness anymore. Just be like, well, a few sins. Hey, who's to worry about that? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying excellence is brilliant. Let's go after that thing. But let's go after that thing without going after this thing. Forbes, which is a more reasonable kind of basis for information than Wiki, says instead... A more honest review. Perfectionism is problematic because it can lead to obsessiveness, inefficiency, and a multitude of serious mental health issues that affect attendance, performance, and morale. You'll often see a perfectionist procrastinate because he or she is afraid of falling before he or she starts. Alternatively, he or she may position themselves as a martyr, the only one who cares, thinks, or works enough about getting things right. You know what? One of the most obvious perfectionists in the New Testament was Martha. Like, she was out the back doing everything that was socially conducive. And Mary sat down at the feet of Jesus. And then she comes in like she's the martyr. Like, hey, look at my sister. Jesus is going, yeah, she made a really great choice. Why don't you sit down? You know, we, we, we love this martyrdom. And in your mind, there's still this perfectionist and she's crossing the road in like Charing Cross wearing an amazing like pinstripe Cartier trouser suit. You can see her in your mind. Her hair is like absolutely off the charts, like kind of blowing loosely in the wind. And it's, but it's all like perfectly hanging there. You know, it's all good. Not hair out of the straight. And then she's got an amazing like satchel, which is filled with her like really beautifully written notes. She smells amazing. She's like wearing high heels, but she's like walking like she's wearing trainers. And like she's crossing the road in your mind and you're thinking perfectionist, perfectionist, perfectionist. But you're so wrong. Because she's a problem-solving pragmatist, like most really successful people. The perfectionist is just sitting at home watching daytime TV, eating burgers. Because you know what? They're terrified of even starting life. The thing is, as long as the world sells you this mythology that the successful people are the perfectionists, you're going to buy perfectionism. But the reality is that the perfectionists haven't really even started. 
Like the people who've done great in business in our society and around the world, if you look at their track record, it's pretty depressing. They literally have gone bust nine or ten times. Like people like Alan Sugar, you know, six or seven failed businesses. Why? Because the problem-solving pragmatists can put nine or ten irons in the fire because they just want one good result. They're happy to lose the majority of what they've invested for the one thing that will seek a return. But the perfectionist will invest one iron and they will whip it till it bleeds. They're thinking, I've got to get this thing working. This is my one-trick pony. They can't accept that anything they do could fail. But in order to fail, they win. Like Michael Jordan says, look, in my career, I've, I've, I've shot 3,000 missed hoops. I've lost 261 games on point. But because I failed, I've become great. Like, imagine if you couldn't accept ever missing a hoop. Imagine losing 200 plus games on you. Like, you're the best player in the world. It's only through failure that you can find success. Now, ultimately, the whole idea of perfectionism in itself is completely imperfect, but it spooks us out and makes us believe that it's virtuous. Let's have a look at these three components a bit more um, succinctly right now. So we've got sociological and cultural influences. That, that, that's something that really affects us um, in terms of how we've developed as people, why some of us are greatly perfectionist and others not. Then we've got cognitive disposition, what we call thinking bias or emotional style. Some people have a disposition towards perfectionism that they have to work with. And thirdly, there's what we call the theological or spiritual um, distortion. Now, let's look at each of these just a little bit. In terms of those people who've been, uh, if you like, nurtured into perfectionism, there is a parenting style we call guilt induction parenting. And this is where parents have given too great a responsibility to their children in terms of what the outworking is of their family unit. So this is where, like, mummy is depressed, little Johnny gets the pots and pans out the cupboard and starts beating them, and mummy says, don't do that, Johnny, you're making mummy ill. So Johnny believes that by beating the pots and pans, he has some incredible power that creates incredible risk for other people. So he then becomes incredibly perfectionistic as he grows up because he believes that his acts are potentially dangerous for others. So guilt induction parenting style can, if you like, lead us to a place where we believe that we have to get everything right, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of everyone else around us. I remember um, interviewing someone for the guilt book and saying, do you know what I mean when I talk about guilt induction parenting style? She said, oh yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. When I was like younger, if I was like kicking my legs up under the table, mum would say, you're only doing that because you want mummy to die. It's like, what? She said, yeah, yeah, if I was like doing something annoying, she'd say, you're only doing that because you want mummy to die. I was like, well, what did you do? She said, well, what do you think you would do if you thought mom, your mum was going to die if you were kicking your legs up under the table? You'd stop. And this woman had, you know, had grown up as a Christian believing that she had to get everything right. She had to be a perfectionist because actually there was a huge danger that people might die if she didn't get it right. You know, so some of the hardwired, irrational beliefs that are in our minds support the idea of perfectionism. Then there's the kind of cultural influences. This is Glamour magazine, not one I read re regularly, but um, it says expectations of physical perfection are at an all-time high. Oddly... It says, uh, I'm not sure what it says that at all actually, but as women have gotten more culturally liberated, we've gotten crazier about our bodies. American, mostly women, spent more than 13 billion on plastic surgery in 2007. Now, these are a 10 year old statistic now, but you know, I double that figure plus. 
and 10 million US girls a year have eating disorders. Now, the reality is that, that what we see in our press is shock, horror, at perfectionism in the body. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is really happening. But then look at this. This is, this is a magazine, right? This is lovely Cheryl um, Cole. Now, have a look at her. She's a beautiful lady. Who thinks she's a beautiful lady? You're allowed to do this. I'm a pastor, and I'm asking you what your general honest opinion is, okay? So you're allowed to do this. Okay, great. So Cheryl's a beautiful woman, right? Fantastic. So we're all thinking, this is great. Cheryl's a beautiful woman. But then it says six steps to stunning. Now, that's a little bit disconcerting, because I'm thinking, well, that's stunning. And what, what this magazine then does is it, it offers better alternatives to Cheryl's own face. So as you see, Cheryl's hair is her own. That's, that's good news for her. Her forehead, though, belongs to Kylie Minogue, who's got a very smooth forehead. And then her eyes are hers again. Well, that's, that's a relief. And her cheekbones, though, belong to Katie Price. Uh, very prominent cheekbones, those, apparently. And then her lips to Angelina Jolie. And then, of course, her tan to Katie Price. Now, have a look at that. Think about that messaging. That is the messaging that young women are receiving every day. Have you, have you, can you see that, ladies? Can you see that messaging? That says... If you're that beautiful, it's just not good enough. You're just not beautiful enough. You need to butcher your face and replace it with elements of other people's faces so you look even more beautiful. Like This is what's fueling perfectionism in our society. This is the spirit of discontentment that is rife in our world right now. I want you to hate on that. Like I want you to feel angry about that. That is abhorrent. You've been created in the image of God. And, and this magazine is selling you this idea that if you could just do this and segment your face into other people's faces, you'd be better. Like, it's so wrong. It's so undermining. It's so powerful. It's so pernicious. We've got to teach our kids that this is not the world we want them to live in. We want them to, to redeem the world, to show them that they are created in the image of God, that they're precious as they are. So that, that's the, the underlying journey towards perfectionism and then the cultural impact but then there's also the theological ramifications someone always says to me at one of these sort of talks oh yeah but doesn't the bible ask us to be perfect you know isn't isn't the bible all about like being perfect and particularly this verse from matthew 5 48 which is translated in the niv be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect now this is a really interesting theological point jesus has just taught the sermon on the mount this is like the most grace-filled piece of teaching in the whole of the New Testament. It's supposed to be the most famous piece of teaching in the whole world ever. Like he's taught us how to pray. He's told us that, you know, the poor are blessed and those who are mourning are, are blessed. Those who are seeking righteousness, they're blessed. These are all the Beatitudes. It's an incredible statement of inclusion. It says, actually, this is good news for the whole world. You're all included. Imagine the irony if at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus turns around and goes, oh, but I was only kidding, guys, because only the perfect can actually come in. Like, you can just feel the sort of disappointed face of the lepers. Or the kind of, you know, the tax collectors, you know, the prostitutes. They're all kind of looking at Jesus going, is this some sort of wind-up? Because, actually, it would be ridiculous if Jesus said at the end of the day that, by the way, you've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a total irony. And it's a terrible irony because the NIV doesn't always translate everything brilliantly. The word teleoi here is a really important word that's translated in many other places in Scripture as complete. Now, it seems to me absolutely transparent, as the Weymouth New Testament translates it, that we are to be complete in goodness as our Heavenly Father is complete. What Christ does is he makes us complete. 
So we find our completion in Christ, and Christ is complete in the Godhead. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they are complete. We find our completion in Jesus, so we find our completion in God. We're living out of a place of fullness, and we are obviously leaning and working towards holiness as an outworking of the spirituality that's already ours. So we are complete, we will be complete, and we are becoming complete. The whole thing is that you are enough, not that you have to strive to be enough. So let's let go of the idea that there's some sort of theological basis for perfectionism in Scripture. There is for holiness, that is an excellent thing, but you are called to celebrate the good things of the kingdom of God. And I like to think that the vineyard is particularly good at celebrating. So, you know, we need to celebrate what God is doing in our lives, the reality of who's created us to be, celebrate his presence, and that in itself is a spiritual antidote to the problem of perfectionism. My friend Charlie Max is a sculptor, and I love this sculpture of the prodigal son. You've probably seen it before. What I love about it in the, sculpt, in, in the sculpture itself is it's so limp. Like, I mean, the father's arms are so strong, but he's modeled the son. He's not hugging back. He's just, like, totally, like, there, just hanging. And what I love about it is, is all the power is in the father, in Hebrews 7, 11, if we have any doubt that perfectionism is what, God not got, what God's not called us to, the writer of Hebrews says, if perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, that's the one that leaned on the perfection of the law, why was there still the need for another priest to come? The other priest is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, if you could, have, if you could achieve perfection through perfectionism in the law, why, why did Jesus need to come? The writer of the Hebrews is saying, you cannot attain to perfection of your own volition. You can only trust in the perfection that Christ could bring in and of himself. That your shame has been manifest on the cross as Jesus became the shame snake for your sake. And you have become the righteousness of God. When God sees you, he does not see your state of sin. He sees your state of glory. To God, you're perfect. You've been made perfect you don't need to make yourself perfect again. Who feels perfect right now? Yes, come on. A few people are getting this message anyway. Okay, we're going to have some time for questions and answers in a minute. But I just want to point out just a couple of things in closing before we do that. The first one is that we can fall into what I call the cycle of dysfunction, which is, is that perfectionism is an element within the cycle of dysfunction. We can worry that life is going to, we're going to be out of control, we're going to be found wanting, that we're going to be publicly humiliated then we begin to undertake perfectionistic behaviors, then we, begin, then we make a mistake and we feel unbelievably guilty and exposed, and then when we're through that phase, we begin to worry again that life is out of control. So I want to encourage you to think about perfectionism as an element of behavior and psychology that fits within other elements of behavioral psychology. So think about the, the way in which worry and guilt are also affecting your spiritual journey, and you need to try and unpick this thing in a kind of multi-dimensional approach rather than just saying, oh, I'm going to deal with perfectionism. Have a look at worry and guilt and how they're affecting you too. And if we we're going to talk about recovery, you know, we could look at a few recovery questions. Um, what do I really think about perfectionism? Do we, have you changed your mind? Who thinks it's worse than they thought it was? Yeah, you're just humoring me. Um, what am I really trying to achieve through perfectionism? What am I feeling inside but pushing outside? Who am I seeking to please through perfectionism? So there's a few questions you can constantly ask yourself. And this is what we call making new appraisals. And steps to change would be becoming more self-aware, becoming aware of the struggle, 
tolerating the discomfort of trying to control everything, reducing your stress, because often at times of stress, these behaviors will become more propagated and more real, increasing your vulnerability and authenticity, being able to be honest with others, particularly with your church small groups about how you're actually feeling about yourself. If you have a core group of authenticity and vulnerability, you're much less likely to be manifestly perfectionistic in other settings. Compassionate self-talk is not some sort of weird stroking of your own hair. It's just adopting the words of Jesus into your own heart. It's about speaking the words of Jesus over your own spirit and saying, you know, you are loved, you are precious, you are enough. Jesus did die for you. You know, you, you, you hold on to those things as a practice in the mind. And finally, that in, in prayer, you're seeking God to liberate you from these behaviors. Now, it sounds simple, and it is a journey, so you just need to be persistent. But you can break free from the power of perfectionism. And the best thing you can begin with is just to celebrate what God is already doing in your life. Cut yourself a break, buy yourself a can of Coke, and share it with a friend. Just say how wonderful you are and how wonderful life is. Even when you're in the thick of the difficult things, take a moment to celebrate. Because everything that Jesus does, in my experience, in the New Testament, is bookended with either a quiet time with the Lord or a meal with his mates. You know, I'm thinking, actually, that is a great way to avoid perfectionism. It's quiet time with the Lord, reaffirming what it is that we've been called towards. And it's a meal with mates to say, hey, guys, I think we did all right today. Let's just celebrate what God is doing amongst us. There's great power in that. If you can stop to your time of quiet preparation with the Lord, and if you can stop to enjoy a time of celebration with a friend, you're in a great place as far as perfectionism is concerned. Great. Let's take a break. Um, why don't you just chat to your friend for two minutes next to you, and um, we're going to come back with, I think, 10 or so minutes of questions. Is that good? So uh, can I just say the rules about questions are, number one, it's actually a question, not a mini-sermon. Um, and uh, and um, it can be about perfectionism or any other emotional health topic. So two minutes and uh, then we'll come back to you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our BBC speakers.